It's 2023, time for new changes and new beginnings in Christ. As we approach Fresh Start Sunday, listen in as Pastor Chris Chadwick gives us a new challenge from the Bible for a new year. Would you take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and open it up to the Revelation, the book of the Revelation, chapter 3. Now, I know when I say Revelation in church, everybody gets scared. Don't get too scared. We'll be fine. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I want to welcome you to Fresh Start Sunday. I'm thankful that you determined to make the right decision to be a part of our service today. My prayer is regardless of where you're at in your walk with Jesus that you'll leave today more committed to him, more committed to walking with him. When you came in today, you saw outside uh, some fresh fruit on the uh, uh, coffee cart outside. You saw some fresh lemonade, fresh flowers, all because I want to reinforce the idea to you that today is supposed to be about fresh starts and the importance of making fresh starts. As a matter of fact, every Sunday of the week, and Sunday's the start of the week, every Sunday is a reminder that you can start the week off fresh. Sometimes you get in a cycle, if you're like every other human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth, that uh, struggles to uh, make things start over, get things to start over. I've heard in my life as a pastor now, going on 30 years between youth pastor and pastor, uh, that people often say things like this, I just wish I could start all over. Or maybe you've made, you've made this phrase, if I would, could do it again, I would do it again differently, and this is what I would do. How many ever made a statement like that? If I could start all over again, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have bought a Chrysler minivan. Or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. That's just the first thing that came to my mind. I wouldn't have bought, you know, whatever. Or I wouldn't have done this. Or I wouldn't have done that. We, we, we all sometimes Monday morning quarterback our life. And we really do uh, desire that we could start things over and start things fresh. Well, every Sunday is an opportunity to start fresh. That's why we worship the Lord on the first day of the week. It's a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were to talk about the Bible, sometimes people say the, the, the Bible is a book of archaic stories that don't mean a lot to me. I want to tell you this more than anything else. The Bible is a book about fresh starts. All the way from, you could talk about creation, the creation that God created the world in, Genesis chapter 1, is a story of a fresh start. The children of Israel going into Egypt, the book of Exodus, is a story of a fresh start. The children of Israel leaving Egypt, the story of Exodus, is a story of a fresh start. The Israelites receiving the Ten Commandments, story of a fresh start. The children of Israel going into the promised land, taking the promised land, a fresh start. The entire book of Ruth is a book about a fresh start. The account of Rahab the harlot who saved the two spies of Israel as they were going to march around Jericho and they were reconnoitering the land and figuring things out. The story of Rahab is a story of a fresh start. Psalm chapter 30, verse number five, the Bible says this, weeping may endure for the night, joy comes in the morning. Some of you are here today, you understand the weeping for the night. You understand the, the dark night of despair. Songs are sung, our, our, our song books, our, our song list in our offices are, are filled with songs that talk about the difficulties of the night and the darkness of night and the struggle of the nighttime. And we sometimes wonder, will this ever change? Will this ever be different? Will things ever be made different? I'm so thankful. Bring that verse back up. I'm so thankful for the second part. Weeping may endure for a night, but praise his holy name. There's a fresh start in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 18, to let us reason together. That's the offer of a fresh start. The story of Jonah is a fresh start. The story of the prodigal son in the New Testament is a fresh start. The woman caught in adultery is a fresh start. The woman at the well is a story of people receiving a fresh start. Christ being raised from the dead, the resurrection is the greatest fresh start in the history of the world. 
Jesus being raised from the dead. Healing of the sick, a fresh start. The opening of the blind eyes, a fresh start. Making the insane and possessed whole, those, those are all point to God and the fact that humanity can have a fresh start. Paul's admonition in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds is an invitation to a fresh start. Paul's exhortation to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before uh, for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's the promise of a fresh start. Paul saying to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a fresh start. I say all that to say this. This is the time of year to have a fresh start. The Bible is full of people who had fresh starts. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible doesn't have anything for me in my day and in our age. I would submit to you that you couldn't be further off. I don't say that unkindly. I say that to be very kind and very nice, but very truthful. The Bible is entirely a book about fresh starts. I don't know where your life is today. I don't know how messed up your life is. I don't know how measured your life is. I don't know how good your life is. I honestly don't know where almost anyone in this room's life is really at. But this much I do know. Wherever you're at with Jesus, you can start over again and you can start fresh. Well, my marriage is on the rocks. Okay, Jesus can give you a fresh start. My life is messed up. My kids don't like me. My boss doesn't like me. Matter of fact, nobody likes me. Okay, you can have a fresh start. You can have a fresh start in Jesus. Matter of fact, that's what our account is about today. Our text this morning is in the book of the Revelation. John, who is the author of the book, is an, is an old man. He's about 90 to 93 years old, we believe. And our text this morning centers on one of the seven churches to whom Jesus is talking to. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, before he gets into all of the prophecy, Jesus is talking to seven churches in the Revelation, and he is dealing with them or talking to them about, um, you would say, we could say it this way, problems in the church and struggles that the church is having. And as he talks to them, he gives rebuke and he gives admonition. But I love this about Jesus, wherever he rebukes, rebukes, he gives also a path forward, a path we could say toward a fresh start. He doesn't just rebuke for the sake of making you feel bad. He rebukes because he wants you to start over again in a fresh start. And the last church that he's talking to in Revelation chapter 7, or Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14 through verse number 22, is the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea was a city in the southwest part of Turkey. If you're into geography, modern-day Turkey, uh, southwest part, all of these churches are in that general area that are in Revelation chapter 2. Laodicea is in the southwest part of what is modern-day Turkey. It was a city in Paul's day known for its wealth. It's a very wealthy, prosperous city. It manufactured a special eye salve. It was known for glossy black wool cloth that was very much sought after. It was near the cities of Heropolis and Colossae. Heropolis, which isn't marked on the map, Heropolis was known for hot water springs and Colossae was known for cold water springs. Now, I'm going to tell you, out of the two of those, my wife would really like Heropolis and the hot water springs. I would like the cold water springs because I like cold water. She would enjoy hot water. How many are hot water people? Like if you're swimming, you want hot water. Anybody cold water? Any of the rest of you even like water? So you can take that slide down. Some of you are like, I don't really care about water at all. And uh, if that was in a junior high room, I would have a lot of jokes for them, by the way. But uh, we'll, we'll spare you those. In Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14, our text starts with this. Uh, Jesus talking here, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. And now you say, who's the angel pastor? The angel is, uh, we believe, a, a, a term that is used for the pastor of the church at Laodicea. And Jesus is talking to the pastor of the church at Laodicea, as you will see him talk to the angel of the chapter three, verse number one, the angel of the church at Sardis and verse number seven, the angel of the church of Philadelphia. He's talking to the pastor, but he's really representing, if you will, uh, talking to and intentionally representing, this pastor's representing the church. He's the figurehead of the church, if you will. 
And that's who he's talking to. And it says, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The amen is a title for God in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a title for the Lord in the Old Testament. He's called the amen. We read about him in Isaiah, this about in Isaiah 65, 15, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. The word truth here in Isaiah 65, 16 is the Hebrew word for amen. He is the truth, Jesus is. Jesus speaks the truth because he is the truth. And the word amen simply means so be it. And so what the scripture is saying, these things say the amen. Jesus is essentially saying this, whatever I say, I agree to. I, I give double, double emphasis to my name, double emphasis to my authority. If I speak it, it is true. And I say amen to that. Kind of like this. How many of you have ever said anything and just kind of popped off at the mouth when you say it? Just like you say it, you don't really think about it. You're just kind of like, say it. And then you're like, wait, wait, wait. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I'm not sure that I really should have said that that way. There's been more than a few times Debbie and I have been in a discussion. And in that discussion, I have said some things and she'll go, you just said this. And more than a few times I've been like, I've never said, I did not say that. Or she'll say, do you think that, I don't think that. We say things sometimes we don't agree with. Here's the idea of verse number 14. Uh, these things say at the amen. What I say, I agree to, I've thought about it. It's absolutely true and it's absolutely accurate. In other words, Jesus is preparing the church at Laodicea to understand this. He doesn't speak hyperbolically to them. He's not just throwing out words. He's, he's not, if you've ever heard teenagers try to talk trash to one another, he, they just come up with stuff. He's not just coming up with anything to say. He literally believes this. It's absolutely true. And he is saying, so be it. Or he's given a, a concrete reality to what he is saying. Now, remember, remember, as we work our way to the idea of the text in just a minute, Hebrew writers did not write with exclamation points to draw emphasis to a text. They wrote and they drew emphasis to a text by way of restating or stating what they said previously in a different way. And so what Jesus is doing in this text through John, who is a Hebrew, though he's writing to the church at Laodiceans, they would have been very familiar with this culture and they'd have been very familiar with the ideas of the Hebrew writers of the day and the way that they would think. You have to understand this. What Jesus is doing is he's drawing special attention and special emphasis to the reality of what he is about to say. It's like, he, like we would say this, make no mistake, this is absolutely true. I've thought about it. This is what, I'm, what I believe. Well, that's one thing if you and I say it. But if the very God who created the universe, which the scripture talks about here, in the verse, they say the amen, uh, the true witness, the beginning of the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is drawing attention to his power. He is drawing attention to his power at creation, to his eternality. I was at the beginning of creation. We created this world together, God the Father, me, God the Son, Jesus talking here, and God the Holy Spirit. We created this world together. I was there and everything that I'm saying to you is absolutely true. So just understand this. It's an absolute statement with absolute authority as he prepares the church at Laodicea for what he's about to say. Like, there's no question about this. There's no doubt about this. The Laodicean church had some struggles. The Laodicean church was blind to its own need. The Laodicean church was unwilling to face the truth. 
the, the Laodicean church needed to understand that they had to confess some sin and receive from God what they needed. And Jesus is simply saying this, I'm the source of creation. I am the I am. I am the faithful and true witness. And I agree 100% with what I have already said. It's a statement of tremendous impact and authority. Well, the Laodicean church needed a fresh start. We'll work our way through this. I want you to see three things this morning, and then we'll finish up with some helpful realities about a fresh start. I want you to see three areas in which the Laodicean church needed a fresh start. Notice with me in verse number 16. So then because thou art lukewarm, let me start in 15. I know thy works, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I want you to notice this morning that the Laodicean church had lost their enthusiasm. They were excited by the wrong thing. They lost their enthusiasm. They were excited by the wrong thing. Someone said one time that the Christian life is marked by three spiritual temperatures. There's a heart on fire for God. Luke chapter 24, verse number 32, the scripture says, and they said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us? And uh, while, we, while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scripture, talking about Jesus right after the resurrection, were not our hearts on fire? Was there not a, a fire in our life? Some of you understand what that's been. You've had your heart on fire for God. The time in your life when things were just, I mean, you couldn't wait to grab your Bible. You couldn't wait to read your Bible. You couldn't wait to get to church. You couldn't wait to listen to a sermon. You, you, you grabbed your phone. You wanted to hear every preaching podcast you could find. You wanted to hear every teaching podcast you could find. You, you wanted to talk to people about Jesus. I mean, everywhere you go, you drove by people with Christian bumper stickers. You honked your horn and you waved with all five fingers. I mean, you were happy. You were happy in Jesus. You were on fire for the Lord. You thought about ministry, you interned at your church, you went on every outreach function. Matter of fact, you, you, you were kind of ticked off at your pastor because he didn't have something every single night of the week. Like, who needs to sleep? I just need Jesus. You showed up at work, people started calling you the preacher. Matter of fact, during lunch, you started taking an offering. I mean, your heart was on fire for God. I mean, there were things God was revealing in your life and you were getting rid of things and you were dealing with sin. You were getting rid of sins you'd never committed. Your heart was on fire. You were journaling. You'd went through a five-subject notebook in about three days. You were, you were passionate about the things of God. That's not the only temperature. There's also a cold heart that the Bible talks about. Matthew 24, 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. There's some people in here that maybe, and today it might, your heart may have been hot at one time and now your heart's cold. There are some people here today that understand what a cold heart's like. You know you should go to church, but you just don't want to. You know you should have a private worship time every morning, but you just don't want to. When you do go to church, it's out of duty. When you do read your Bible, it's a hope that'll make your life a little bit better that day. It's not really to be close to Jesus. Your heart's just cold. You see lost people in the world who don't know Jesus, who don't know that if they die today, they would go to heaven. They have no idea how to have eternal life. They have no idea how to have a relationship with God. And, and though that pains you a little bit, you easily push it aside and you just move forward in a cold way. You see the suffering, the needy, the poor, the hungry, the lost, the destitute, and your life's like, yeah, bummer for them. But your heart's just cold. It's just grown cold. The Bible uses that phrase in the verse that I just read. The love of many shall wax cold. The word wax just means to grow so cold over time, to grow that way over time. And you just grow cold. What once used to excite you 
now does it? Where you used to be known as the preacher in church, now you're no, or, or at work, I mean, now you're known as the guy who used to go to church? Where you were once known as the girl who was passionate about Christ, now you're known as the, the girl who knows a little bit about the Bible but never really does anything with it. The love of many has waxed cold. Well, those are two people. I mean, there's two. But our text reveals a third, and according to the scripture, the most dangerous type of heart. Look at verse number 16. In 15, he says, I would that you are, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you weren't cold or hot. I wish you were either one. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. There's a hot person, they're passionate about the things of God. There's a cold person, they couldn't care. There's the lukewarm person, they're kind of ambivalent. They come to church, they sit in a service, they can grab their Bible, they can do private worship, but, but it, it doesn't really speak to them. They do what they do out of duty. They do what they do out of responsibility. And sometimes that's the case for everyone. But this is the constant state of the lukewarm believer. They find more comfort in the things of the world than the things of God, though they have a religious nomenclature or a religious language that they can speak. They know when to say amen and when to raise their hand in a service. They know when to seem on fire and when not to seem on fire. But the reality of it is their heart is just lukewarm. They're concerned at times about the things of God, but at times they're just not. They're not really dependable. The book of James would say when it comes to spiritual things that they are double-minded. They're here every once in a while and they're here every once in a while. So just by default, this is where they live in the middle. The lukewarm Christian, said one commentator, is comfortable. Complacent, doesn't realize his need. If he were cold, at least he would feel it. But the cold waters from Colossae and the hot waters of Heropolis would be lukewarm by the time they got to Coloss- by the time they got to Laodicea. Lukewarmness is antithetical to the concept of Scripture. We have Jesus. We have joy. We have peace. We have all the gifts of our gentle, loving Savior, yet we can, over time, become, am, become ambivalent to the things of God. You see, because of Jesus, we have every reason to be fervent in spirit. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 12, verse number 11, commands us to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's Fresh Start Sunday. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's some in this room today that need to develop a fervency of spirit. And the reason that you've lost your spirit is, is you're excited by the wrong thing. You've lost your enthusiasm. Some of you even in here today may have made a ministry more important than Jesus. The reason that you come to church is because I've got to serve and I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to get all these things. And by the way, service is good and sometimes I understand that. But if that's a habitual state and you're not serving out of, heart of, out of a heart of love and devotion to Jesus, then there's a fundamental problem. I love my ministries. I have a few of them. I get to preach here at Canyon Ridge. I get to lead here at Canyon Ridge. I get to be a chaplain for the San Diego Police Department. I I get to minister to my wife and and my daughters. I, I love my ministries, but not a single ministry that I have is more important than my relationship with Jesus Christ. Lukewarm Christians, they have all that they need. We're called to be fervent in spirit. The church is not allowed to be a, what we would call a closed system. The second law of thermodynamics requires that a closed system eventually moderate so that no more energy can be produced. 
Unless something is added from the outside, the system decays and it dies. Without added fuel, the hot water in the boiler becomes cool. Without electricity, the refrigerant in the freezer becomes warm. The the system has to be affected by something external. The church is not a closed system. Jesus is the source of power that keeps us hot. Bible says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. The Laodicean church was self-satisfied, independent and secure. Literally, the scripture says they were by their own testimony They were, in verse number 17, they were in need of nothing. Hey, what do you guys need? Nothing, we're good. Oftentimes I'll ask people, sometimes pastors, hey, what can I pray for you or your ministry about? I'm sad to say that probably half the time, this is what I hear. Nothing, we're good. Nothing? You don't see the condition of the lost in your community? You don't see the darkness and contentment in your own soul at times? You don't see the struggle in your own marriage? You need nothing? And then sometimes I talk to church planners who don't have a lot of people, and they don't have much money, and they don't have any property. They have nothing, literally. Hey, what can I pray for you about? And they say things like this. Oh, pastor, where could we start? Why? Because they've not yet grown comfortable, praise God. They've not grown content, praise God. They know there's more land to be conquered, praise God. They know there's more, more areas in their life that have to be dealt with. They're not yet excited by the wrong thing. They've not lost their enthusiasm for Jesus. Not only had the church at Laodicea lost their enthusiasm and were excited by the wrong thing, they lost their values. They admired the wrong thing. Verse number 17, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that the that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment and thou mayest be clothed. They lost their values. They literally had messed up values. Now, Revelation chapter two, verse number nine, if you were to look over there, you can or don't, but it says that the church of Smyrna was a poor church and they thought of themselves as poor when in reality they were rich. The Laodicean church boasted themselves of being rich and wealthy and in need of nothing. And yet they were very, very poor in the eyes of God. They had everything they could ever want, everything they could ever need. They had programs for the family that was taken care of. They had a pastor and a pastoral staff. They were, they were more than content. They had good music. They had all that they wanted. They were in a wealthy city. It was a banking center. I mean, they, Laodicea, they had literally in their life all the financial and aesthetic security you could ever think of. Some of this marketplace Spirit and the spirit of consumerism had undoubtedly, and obviously by our text, filtered its way into the local church. Perhaps that's why the church declined spiritually. They just had so much. How you guys doing? Oh man, we're great. We've got plenty of money. I've got all that I need. We're in need of nothing. You might say it this way. We are so blessed. Have you seen what we're able to buy? Oh, how's life going? Man, we are so blessed. I just bought a Range Rover. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. I got a Range Rover and I've got Sea-Doo's and I've got 
shrimp. Just trying to think of something, sorry. Sometimes illustrations fall apart at the last seconds. I've got everything that I need. I've got it all. I mean, the Bible literally says, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I've got everything that their heart could ever imagine. I mean, they lived in a wealthy city. They lived in a tourist city. They, now, theirs was a banking industry. They had, they had all kinds of banking. I mean, people loved Laodicea. It was a wonderful place for folks to go. It's not dissimilar from where we live. Now, we're not a banking center, but we're a defense center. Almost every job in this room today is in some way connected to the Department of Defense for the United States government. Not every job, but almost every job. And then we have pharmaceuticals and we have biotech and we have all of those things. And and if we're not careful, that spirit can center and get into our lives where like, man, I've got a big car. I've got a nice house. I live here. I've got this. I've got that. I've got all of these things. Obviously, God is blessing. You know, the problem, they had lost their values. They admired money more than they they admired Jesus. You ever wonder, now, most of you, Canyon Ridge is your church, but many of you have been to other churches. Sometimes I wonder why so many churches show on their bulletins, on their letterhead, on their website, stuff like that. The the first and prominent picture is a picture of some buildings, you kind of show on your letterhead what's important to you, what, what you value, what, what you love. The, the Laodicean church could proudly show their latest annual report with impressive statistics. January 1, AD 42, we had this much money. December 1, AD 42, this much money, an increase of 32.5%. They, they could show all statistics. They could show all of these things. It was, it was impressive. Yet Jesus said in verse 16 that he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. He was done with them. I was meditating on that this week for our 20th anniversary. I did, we did a challenge coin. I love challenge coins. It's kind of the culture around here. I, I, I collect them, uh, but I only collect it from people who, who give them to me. I don't go buy them because I want them to have meaning. And so for our 20th anniversary, I came up with a challenge coin idea, and I, I got our graphics team together, and we sat down, and I began to share my heart. And this is the first image that they came up with. And um, now the front side was really cool. And then they showed me the back side. And now, if you know me, you, this is what you know about me, that I am a gracious, kind, tempered, never get super excited kind of person. If I was your coach, I would never raise my voice. Matter of fact, people would wonder if I was even on the bench. They would be like, he just never, no, that's not me at all. Matter of fact, when Bobby Knight threw a chair in like 1984, I considered that my life calling. Um, I'm totally kidding. He was out of bounds. I've never been. I've only thrown smaller chairs. Um, I'm teasing, but I saw that picture and um, man, it just kind of hit me. And, and I, whenever we bring anybody on staff or to one of our teams like this, I always tell them, listen, I'm a super passionate guy. And sometimes you're going to hear passion. Don't ever confuse it with anger. I wasn't angry about it, but I was very, very clear with our guys, uh, ladies that, that helped with this. I said, Debbie and I didn't move from Texas to San Diego 20 years ago to be concerned about buildings. We didn't come here to start a real estate business. That, that was not our goal. That was not our agenda. That's not our desire. If it was, and I'm not saying that's wrong, if that's what God's led a person to do. I'm just saying for me in Canyon Ridge, that's not what God called us to do. Now, we do thank God for this property. We thank God for the influence he's given us and how we can use it and the opportunities that we have with so many different ministries that we're able to have here. But churches aren't made by buildings. Church are made, churches are made up of people who are surrendered to the person of Jesus Christ. 
People sometimes say, I'm going to go to the church. And what you mean is the church building because you can't really go to the church until we corporately meet together. And we could corporately meet together under a tree. And we've had to do that before. Or in a rec center, we've had to do that before. Or outside in the courtyard, we've had to do that before. That is a building. This is a building in which we meet a cool one. Looks like a bunt cake, uh, cake pan. Uh, people aren't sure if it's a nightclub or a church sometimes. But I'll tell you this, without a doubt, that that is not the church. People are the church. And we didn't come to start a building. We came to start a local New Testament church. But our values get mixed up. So I said to our guys, our team, really passionately, I said, no, no, no. And I drew out what I want, and this is what we came up with. What is it? It's the skyline of the city of San Diego. It's beautiful. I love it. I love that coin. It's my favorite coin that I, that I have. I absolutely love it. And the, the skyline represents the souls in the city of San Diego because we, as a church, are called not to build buildings, but to reach people. Not to have property, but to see souls come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not to see equity increase, but to see discipleship increase. Not to see parking lots, but to hear people praise the Lord in singing and meditating and per private worship and personal ministry. That's what we have called to do. And at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, we are going to keep our value on the person of Jesus Christ and the people he desires to reach. And so there was a measured solution in verse number 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed clothed and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear there's a measured solution the solution is pay the price to get true gold tried in the fire this suggests that the church needed some persecution matter of fact Jesus says in verse 18 I mean read it with me you don't have to be a pastor to see this I counsel thee. Now, when I encourage you, some people come to me for counsel, as they should. And, and, and when your pastor counsels you, you should, you should take it seriously and consider it deeply. It's the admonition of Hebrews chapter 13, 7 and Hebrews 13, 17. When your pastor who watches for your souls gives you biblical counsel, consider it deeply. And, and, and especially if he's giving it to you from the word. But when Jesus counsels you, you need to consider it absolutely. It's a difference between deeply and absolutely. With, with pastors, yeah, with Jesus, yes, sir. And so Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. The church needed some persecution. The church needed some suffering. They're way too comfortable. Way too comfortable. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5, 7, the trying of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth. The trying of your faith, the trial that you're going through is more precious than gold. Even if the gold is tried in the fire, it might be found into the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith would be found into the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The struggle, the suffering, the persecution you go through listen to me, is more precious than gold. Why? Because gold perishes. Gold is gone. It's here for a little while, and the Bible says it makes wings and it flies away. If you don't think that's the case, look at your 401k from 2020 and look at it today. I looked at my 401k and it started singing me that old song, I Believe I Could Fly. Where did you land? And then it sang, came back. We haven't yet. Oh, my word. That's great. I asked Debbie, where's the tent? She goes, why? Because we'll need it. Gold perishes. It makes itself wings and it flies away. The church needed to suffer. 
I think about COVID a couple of years ago and the average church in America, I'm told, statistics came out, I think two weeks ago, that pre-COVID, the average church in America ran 137 people. Praise God for that. Average church in America. You have some really big, you have some really small, but just the average, and you can do what you want with averages, but you get the idea. Average is, at least it's a benchmark, 137 people. After COVID, the average church in America today runs 67 people. Why? Because when some suffering came, some people walked away. Jesus said this, I think suffering's good for you. You need it. Suffering sets priorities. When you suffer, you learn what's important. You have a child get really, really sick. Unless you're a complete moron, you don't care who wins the the game on Saturday. My mother-in-law is about to pass away. We know that. It's obvious. God could change things, but we don't think that he's going to. She's 74. She wants to see Jesus. We don't want her to live the rest of her life in pain and suffering. And um, we, we know that's going to be the case. Can I be honest with you? There are some, some things that just aren't as important to me as they used to be. And that's my mother-in-law. She's been irritating me for 30 years. No, I'm kidding. She's a woman of God, loves Jesus with all her heart. I love her with all my heart. But I'm just simply saying, there's some things that aren't just important. Why? Because something else is more important. See, you value something that you really value. When it, when it begins to, to, to suffer, all other things lose their importance. And we begin to focus on that. I'm a chaplain with the San Diego Police Department, as I said earlier, and I'm the chaplain for Northern Division, La Jolla. We get called out to every hangnail in the area, let me tell you. Um, if you were in some of the other parts of San Diego, they get called out. But we, we, we do have, have serious crimes in San Diego, especially in the summertime. We do the beach areas and stuff like that, UTC and, and all of that. And I love it. It's a wonderful opportunity. I get to share the gospel all the time. I get to talk to people about Jesus all the time. I love the influence God's given me. Um, It's one of my greater joys. And I love sharing the gospel with anybody. And when you're stuck in a car with somebody for 10 hours, uh, things just come up. I mean, you don't even have to try to make them come up. You just talk about everything. And, uh, And I love it. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And a wonderful opportunity. It's a joy uh, to do. Well, Friday night, I was uh, at home and and I was working at home just on Friday night and preparing for today and this morning and thinking through stuff and thinking through the day and how things would go and the message and all of that. And it was 7.20 and the head chaplain for San Diego, a friend of mine named Chuck, Chuck uh, sent me a text and it was one of those texts like, hey, something went down and I need either you or this other guy to go to um, Northeast. Eastern Division and just check on those guys. And so I voted that the other guy should go. Because it's 720 and Debbie was here. She was ministering with our American Heritage Girls and I hadn't eaten yet and I'd worked out earlier in the day and so I was really hungry. And so I thought, well, I'm just too hungry so I'll just ignore it and I'll, I'll kind of let it go. Well, then Chuck called me. Like 720, he sends me a text. 721, he calls me. And I'm like, oh dude, I better give him a call. So I called him and he said, hey, Chris, I just need you to know something. There was an officer-involved shooting up at Riverside with the Riverside County Sheriff. And the officer that was shot, we think it's going to be okay, but the officer that was shot was a prior SDPD officer. He went through Academy 121 with some of the guys up at Northeastern. He worked at Northeastern and he just transferred up there a year ago. And this is the second officer shot in 14 days. Can you go and talk to the guys? And just see if there's anything that's needed there by guys. I mean, both the male and female officers. Can you go talk to the officers up there and just see if they need anything? Their chaplain is Rob, and he's on the way to Riverside to be with the family. So if you could go up there, that would be great. Sure, Chuck, I'll go up there. Well, as soon as I get off the phone with Chuck, another chaplain 
Uh, Chaplain Hubbard from Southeastern Division gives me a call and he says, hey, Chris, there's a new sergeant at Northern, your division, and he needs you right now. Can I give him your number? Absolutely. Give him my number right now. And Chris, they want you up there. Several of the guys went to the academy with the officer Calhoun, uh, Darnell Calhoun, who was shot up there. They need you at Northern. So, okay, uh, let me call Chuck. So I called Chuck. I canceled. I didn't go to Northeastern. I said, I'll I'll go up to uh, my division, Northern. I get up there, and uh, as I'm en route, uh, we get word that uh, Darnell Calhoun was ambushed and killed in Riverside. Second officer in 14 days. Now, the SDPD guys that went up there, they came back and they told me this. They said, chaps, there was an honor processional. An honor processional is when an officer involved shooting happens and the officer is killed in the line of duty. As many agencies as, can, as, as are possible will come and they'll go from the hospital and they'll ride to wherever the final destination is. And every single agency in Southern California was represented for him. The officers told me it was at least a three-mile processional of squad car after squad car after squad car, every federal agency, every agency in Southern California, many from Central California, they, they literally uh, just made it down there in a matter of an hour and a half to two hours. Anywhere, anyone that could get there, I'm sure guys from Nevada came over. And um, it was a three huge processional. Darnell's family will be well taken care of financially. There'll be a grand funeral in the next 10 to 14 days for Darnell. It'll be huge. Dignitaries, political figures, they'll be there. They'll honor his life. People will go, whoa, man, that was a huge funeral. Oh, wow, he's really taken care of. Can I tell you this? When you lose someone you love, what you value the most is not what you get from them, it's them. When you lose something that you love, what you value the most is not what you got from them, it's them. And Darnell's family would testify today that they'd give up the processional and they'd give up the, uh, the, the, the financial blessing, if you will. They'd give up the funeral of dignitaries just to have their son, their brother, their loved one back. They'd give everything up. Why? Because they understand that suffering brings about a measure of proper value and you value what's important. The church at Laodicea, they were valuing money and we are called to value Jesus. Not only had they lost their enthusiasm and their values, they lost their vision. They focused on the wrong thing. In verse number 18, the Bible says at the end of it, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. They couldn't see reality. They couldn't see clearly. They were living in a self-righteous, self-centered paradise. They were proud of a church that was about to be rejected by Jesus Christ. It was about to no longer have the title of a church. Verse number 16, Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Jesus is literally saying this, you better get some things right or you won't be any longer. Peter teaches that when a believer isn't growing, their spiritual vision is affected. Second Peter chapter one, verse number five, the Bible says, and beside all this, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was, or hath forgotten that he was purged from his own old sins. Church at Laodicea couldn't see themselves as they really were. couldn't see the Lord, verse number 20, outside the door knocking and asking them to invite him in. 
They were so wrapped up in building, said one commentator, their own kingdom that they became lukewarm in concern for a lost world. They were excited by and had a vision for the wrong thing. They lost their enthusiasm. They lost their values. They lost their vision. So what's the solution? Are they just a bummer church? Does Jesus tell this, them this before he breaks up with them or breaks up with them or does, does he give them some hope? I would submit to you today that there's a solution. No doubt in a crowd this size, there's some of you that have lost your enthusiasm. You came to church because Bernie called you and you'd just rather come to church than hear him call you again this week. Some of you came to church because it's just what you do. Some of you came to church because you have a Catholic background and you came to church hoping to appease God because you sinned last night. Party on Saturday, get lit up and laid on Saturday, go to church on Sunday, be right with Jesus. Come on, I'm not, I'm not messing around. Let me do my thing on Friday and Saturday. I'll go to church and make it all good and I'll appease my conscience. What's the solution? Some of you lost your value. You're valuing the wrong thing. To you, your job is huge. To you, making money is huge. To you, your house is everything. To you, your kids are everything. I love my kids. I'm thankful for my house. I love my wife. But let me explain something, something to you. Jesus needs to be first and foremost in my life. What's the solution? Verse number 19, look at it with me, would you? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now understand this. If Jesus loves you, he will rebuke you and chasten you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number six says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? You say, what's the word chasten mean? It literally kind of conveys the idea of a spanking. Not physical, but metaphorical that Jesus is, is disciplining you. That, that's what the word means, to chasten, to, to discipline and conveys in that culture the idea of a spanking. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And then the Bible goes on to say, and if you be without chastisement, then are you, this is not a curse word, then are you bastards and not sons. The word bastard simply means one who does not know who their father is. If you be without chastisement, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, you're not saved. You're not saved. That's not me. <laughs> there are some verses in the Bible people think, Pastor, I can't believe you said that. Jesus said that. I don't even like that verse. I wish that if I was without, if I, if I didn't have chastisement, it meant the blessing of God in my life. But it's the exact opposite thing. What's the solution? Verse number 18. By gold, trying the fire, look at the end of that. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Number one, humbly repent. Humbly repent. Remember, Jesus is talking to believers who are members of a local church in Laodicea, and he is telling them to repent. Here's the idea of repent, to have a change of heart and mind that abandons the former disposition or attitude and results in the new self. It's a new behavior. He's talking to believers. He's talking to safe folks, and it's to have a new behavior, and it's remorse or regret over a former behavior. It's like this. If if you're a believer and you were engaged in porn, then repent of that. Meaning, I understand how sinful porn is and I'm turning from sin and I'm gonna put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's saying this, I valued my property and my possessions more than I valued Jesus. I'm turning from that and I'm gonna value Jesus most. And whatever Jesus tells me to do with my property and my possessions, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to humbly repent. 
Repentance is not going, yeah, that stinks. I should have done better. That's not repentance. That's acknowledgement. Big difference between the two. I see it. I understand it. Listen to me. And I turn from it. Here's where many of you live your life. Yeah, yeah, I should do better. I should, I know it. I know it. But all you're doing is acknowledging what you've been called to turn from. I know I need to get control of my anger. I know it's ruining my family. I know it's destroying my husband. I know that it's destroying my, or my wife. I know that it's messing with my kids. I know that it affects my parents. I know I need to. 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 That's just acknowledging repentance. Boom. I repudiate that. And I'm going to trust in Christ. And when I mess up, I'm going to fess up and I'm going to repent again. And I might have to repent 52,000 times in a minute, being exaggerating to prove a point here, obviously. I might, have to, I might have to turn many times, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's why he says at the end or at the end of verse number 19, to be zealous, therefore, and repent. We're literally to be zealous or look for opportunities or needs to repent. I know I shouldn't be going out with that dude. I know it. I know it. I know it. God has told me about it. You get, listen to me. Listen. Some of you think I'm going to talk about a bad dude, but I'm going to talk about a good dude. I know he's a good dude. I know he loves Jesus. I know he goes to church. I know he's passionate about the things of God, but God has told me not to do it, but I'm so desperately want to have a relationship with somebody. I don't want to be alone the rest of my life. I know God said no. I know God said no. I know God said no. If God said no, turn. But they have everything that I've ever wanted. He's tall. He's dark. He's athletic. He's a multi-billionaire. And he tithes. I'm sorry, that's my dream. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. Forgive me. <laughs> kind of got lost there for a second. I just called that guy my son-in-law. So <laughs> Dad, I don't want to marry him. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes. Whatever it is, turn. Humbly repent. I know I treated you like garbage. I know I shouldn't have said those words. I'm so sorry. I'm going to turn from them. And then I'm going to the great grace giver, Jesus Christ himself, and I'm asking him for help and mercy and strength to not turn that way again. But if and when I turn that way again, you can be comfortable in this. I'm turning back because I'm not living in that anymore. I'm living here where the Lord would have me. You know what a fresh start is? You know where it starts? Just repent. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're not sure that if you died, heaven will be your home, can I tell you this? It starts with repentance. Now, let's not get confused about this. Repentance does not mean that you have to do good in order to do something. It means you acknowledge and turn from it. See, before a person gets saved, they believe in something. And repentance says, I'm turning from what I believe in, whether it's Catholicism or atheism or Hinduism or, or even in the, the puritanical idea of a Jesus, like, oh, I go to church, I'm good. No, no, whatever I believe in, I'm turning from my belief in that and I'm trusting in the power and the grace of God alone to save me. I'm resting in Jesus, as we sang earlier, and Jesus alone. So I turn from that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, if you're not sure that if you died tonight, heaven would be your home, can I tell you today that Jesus loves you? He died for you. He wants to give you eternal life. He literally desires to give you eternal life. He died that you might have life. He said in Luke 19.10, a verse in the Bible, he says he's come to seek and to save those of you who don't know him. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why Jesus came. Turn from your sin and come to a loving 
savior. He loves you so much. He died the most horrific death in all of human history so that you could have eternal life. Trust Jesus today. So number one, the solution, humbly repent. Number two, recognize that Jesus is near and calling. Verse number 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, you need to understand something. This verse is written to believers. And so for believers, Jesus is saying, I want you to have fellowship with me. I wanna, I wanna have fellowship with you. I wanna have a closeness and a connection with you. And when you're not letting me in church at Laodicea, I'm standing at your heart's door and I'm pleading with you to let me in. I'm knocking. Now you need to understand something. I'm not a grammar guy, but I do like the Greek because that's what the Bible was written in. And it's written in a present active imperative tense, which means that whenever you're not in fellowship with Jesus, you've stiff-armed him out of your heart or your life. That he, if you're a believer, he stands at your heart's door and he's knocking in your heart, at your heart's door. It's like he's doing this. Not trying to be facetious. It's, this is literally what's happening. How long are you going to do that? This is what Jesus is doing. He's knocking at your heart's door. Some of you have heard the knocking so long, you've got used to it. And you're not paying attention to it anymore. Some of you have the ability to tune out irritating things. I don't have that ability. That's why I tell people when they irritate me. My wife, oh God bless her. If you don't know this, I have a, I have a, I have a puppy. Um, and she's awesome, and, and, and she really is, well, most of the time. Sometimes she's, well, every once in a while I like her. She's a, no, she's a wonderful dog. And uh, I have an old grouchy dog, too. Uh, he's a Chihuahua Yorkie, he's six and a half pounds, and the puppy is like 13 pounds. And they, every once in a while, they'll, they'll, they, they don't fight, they play, like they're going to kill each other. And it literally is the most irritating sound in human history. It's like, and they're just going back and forth. It's like they're trying to, you know, grab each other's esophaguses or something. And you go in and look, and they're not even doing anything. It's like you're just you're touching each other. Come on, if you're going to fight, throw down. Good great. This is like a white guy fighting the 1990 NBA. Let's go for crying out loud. Okay. You guys don't watch basketball. <laughs> if you did, you know, that was a funny joke. So I'll have to save that for when I talk at the hall of fame. Um, but my dogs, they just sit there and they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight. And I can be in the back room of our house when we don't have a big house, but I can be in the back room of our house with the door shut and Bose noise canceling headphones on that a friend of mine bought to help my marriage. No, he really did. That's what he said anyway. And I can be in the back with noise canceling headphones on and I can hear those dogs and it drives me up the wall. Because they're just saying, yuck, 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 yuck. and I'm in the back, you know, praying, singing, you know, thou art worthy. I'm going to kill those dogs, Lord. And Debbie is out there, and I am not kidding you. Debbie will have her private worship time in a chair in our dining area with the dogs doing that at her feet for 10 minutes. And I walk out, and I'm like, babe. And she's like, what? Could you tell him to shut up? Now, if your house, you don't say shut up. Sorry. Not really, but that's literally, can you tell him to shut up, please? Because I, I mean, I showed patience for like 10 minutes and now the Lord has given me liberty to act human. And she will do this. What are they doing? Like the neighbors just called CPS on us. Do you not hear it? And she'll go, no, I don't hear it at all. That's how some of you are with Jesus knocking on your heart. Some of you right now. And you just gotten used to it.
You can listen to a whole message with Jesus doing this. My hand's hurting. You could listen to a whole message with Jesus doing this. And you're just going, I'm used to that. That's why he said, I stand at the heart, door of your heart and I knock. Jesus is there, he's near, and he's calling. People say, God seems so far away from me. He's not. He's near. He's right there, and he's calling. He's calling. We used to sing an old song, Jesus is calling, tenderly calling, tenderly calling today. Jesus is right there. Bring up the third point, the third solution. If you'll open the door, he'll fellowship with you. If you say, okay, Lord, whatever you have for me. If any man, look at verse number 20. I don't want you to think I'm coming up with this. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and will sup. The word sup means fellowship or have a meal with or drink good coffee with him. I will sup with him and he with me. If you'll let Jesus in, he wants to fellowship with you. You say, are you saying it's all my responsibility? No, bro, he's on the outside knocking, wanting to come in. Your responsibility is to open the door and let him come in. That's it. Well, how do I do that, pastor? Lord, I'm so sorry I've kept you out of my life. Will you forgive me? I turn from that and I'm gonna turn and trust and live for you. Well, it's gotta be more than that. No, it's just gotta be as sincere as that. It doesn't need big flowery words. I mean, you could say them, that's fine. Flowery words without sincerity mean nothing. Simple words with sincerity mean everything. Flowery words with sincerity mean everything. It's just the sincerity of your heart. Open your heart's door and he will come in. I wonder today how many of you are here and don't know Christ as your personal savior. If you're here today and you're not sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven, in just a moment, pastors will be standing at the ends of this aisle. We have counselors ready to take the Bible and show you from God's eternal word how heaven could be your home. Would you submit to Jesus today? Would you submit to him today? If you say, I don't want to talk to anybody, but I I really want to trust Christ, then pray and ask Christ to forgive you of your sin. Admit that you've sinned, I should say. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone. A prayer, something like this. These are just, it's a guide. There's no magic prayer words. But Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. And the best I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And I ask you to come into my heart and save me and be Lord and master of my life. If you don't know Jesus, come to him today. Today, I had the joy on Friday of hanging out with some young guys and we worked out, we had a great time. And after we were done, pastors are gonna talk about Jesus and I sure am. And I, we started talking about their salvation. And one of the young men said, it was after an Easter service here at Canyon Ridge that I heard you preach and I just felt the tugging of God on my heart and I went home and I asked Jesus to save me. Oh, praise his holy name. If you're here and you don't know Christ, come. If you're here and God spoke to you and you are a believer, just humbly submit to him whatever he has said. Father, bless our time in the word today. Be with this time. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m.